Well, hello and welcome. My name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. I want to thank you for joining us today. I have a very special presentation. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint, I started the organization to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the country. Uh, ultimately, while our mission has grown, a lot of our work is around trying to reduce and eliminate these practices by connecting people together and changing hearts, minds, laws, policies, and practices uh, so that we can reduce the use of restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, even corporal punishment that happens in, in many states. Um, our vision is really to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. I will say that we are very opposed to the use of restraint and seclusion anywhere they might be happening, whether it's a school, a residential facility, a behavioral treatment program, uh, even elder care. There's a lot of places these things are used. They can do a lot of damage and cause a lot of trauma. So we really want to support better ways of working with all individuals. I'm really excited today to have Diane Gould uh, joining us again. Uh, Diane Gould is actually back for her second presentation with us uh, and really excited to have her joining us today to talk about behavior plans. I do want to let you know that this event is actually being recorded, so uh, you won't be able to ask questions during the presentation, but it will be, uh, the presentation will be available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast. If you do have a question about the presentation, you are always welcome to email that to me. Uh, you can email that to guystevens at nseclusion.org. Always happy to answer any questions that you might have. So before we dive into the presentation, uh, I would like to go ahead and introduce uh, Diane. So Diane, welcome and, and thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, thanks. Uh, so I wanted to give you a little bit of an introduction so people know a little bit about who you are. Uh, you've been in private practice outside of Chicago for, for many years. Uh, and before that you worked in schools uh, and private agencies for uh, 30 years. Uh, and that you uh, have been a social worker with an interest uh, in behavior change, that your education included a certification in applied behavior analysis from Penn State University and a master's degree in social work from the University of Illinois uh, at Chicago in 1987, uh, that you received additional training from the Institute of Applied Behavior Analysis in Los Angeles, uh, California, and the Center for Collaborative Problem Solving in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, also been involved at UCL UCLA for the Peer Certification Program and the Social Thinking Center of San Jose, California. Uh, of course, you also have been involved in um, setting up the uh, PDA um, or Pathological Demand Avoidance um, Organization here in North America. Uh, and you were um, actually the first professional in America with certification in PDA uh, and the founder of PDA North America. So. You've been doing lots of uh, lots of work over your career to help people. I know you and I have had many conversations about the the work you're doing and and why you're doing it. So thank you so much for for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. Really, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I did want to talk a little bit about um, you know kind of your background because sure. you know as we we shared this event online and uh, you know people. Uh, saw the information about the event, there was a lot of concern raised because you've got a background in uh, as a BCBA. And um, a lot of the, the members in our community have had uh, negative experiences, very negative experiences oh. with um, applied behavior analysis or ABA uh, therapy for autistic children. And um, so th there's a lot of concern that, uh, and of course, you know, at the Alliance, um, you know, we, we, 
you know, we don't support the use of, of ABA therapy. In fact, you know, we try to uh, really steer people away from compliance-based approaches to, to working with kids to things that are, you know, compassionate, neuroscience-aligned, um, you know, trauma-informed and, and, and whatnot. Um, but I happen to know kind of the, the backstory about, you know, how and why you uh, went to get a uh, a um, board certification on behavior analysis. And I wonder if you might be able to share a little bit about that with our audience about kind of what what led you down that road of, of becoming a board, board certified uh, behavior analysis. Sure, I'm happy to. And I do understand the concerns. Absolutely. Uh, it's funny, though, to me that um, I only think of myself as a BCBA when I'm criticized for being a BCBA, generally I just think of myself as a social worker. I've been a social worker my whole life. I wanted to be a social worker when I was 10, trick or treating for UNICEF, you know? Um, so I, I really don't think of myself as a, a BCBA. And, you know, I'm kind of an old school social worker. I don't really know how social workers are trained now because I'm so old, but, you know, we are really taught this non-judgmental attitude and that every human has the right to self-determination. And that's what we need to foster as a um, clinical social worker for our clients, you know, not trying to change people, um, you know, and so um, that's kind of how I, I view myself. Um, but as I've worked in schools and with families and individuals, I, I didn't really like how behavior was addressed. I remember my first week of my internship in a public school outside Chicago. And I, you know, I was a kid I, and uh, I said to my supervisor, I think day one, that if I kept working in schools, I wouldn't allow my children when I had them to attend school because they were being yelled at all the time. And, and that was kind of my, you know, first experience with kind of how, how punitive things felt to me, even kind of when I was 26. So I got my BCBA, you know, with that attitude, if you can't beat them, join them. And I wanted to have a seat at the table to talk about behavior in a different way. And that's how I focused my use of my certificate is doing behavior um, assessments in schools. You know, I don't, I've never done ABA therapy. I mostly at this point work for non-for-profit attorneys. So when there's, you know, a, a really hard case where a student's not getting what they need in school, they hire me to, to do one of these assessments. They're generally kids with, with very traumatic backgrounds. And, you know, I can use my social work approach and it it works for for all of us, and I think mostly it works for the students. I um, my last guy knows this. My last school assessment, um, the school was so angry at me that they filed a, a complaint with the BCBA board because they were unhappy with my assessment because mostly because I wouldn't blame the child for his behavior. And um, I actually put the, the words in my report that um, children do well if they can, you know, Ross Green's approach. So they fired 
um, they filed two complaints against me. And, um, you know, I had been very vocal against their punitive practices at the school. So I kind of left it to chance whether they take my certificate away from me. But um, at this point, they haven't. But I, I really have toyed with the idea of, you know, making a lot of people happier by giving back my BCBA. But I know that I'm able to, to help these kids. And I don't know who would do it if I couldn't um, be part of these due process legal hearings where they need a BCBA. And my fear is they'd get a traditional BCBA. And, you know, they might not have this trauma-sensitive um, neurodiversity respectful approach that I have in my in my um, behavior plans. And that's, you know, one of the things I'm going to to talk about um, today, you know, I I want to also say that you know maybe I'm not innocent in all this. Is I find human behavior fascinating, and I always have, and I even find behavior change fascinating, and what works for one person and what works for a different person, and you know, using this knowledge to help people um, and myself reach their goals, whether it's, you know, to eat more healthy foods or, um, you know, sometimes we can use these skills for just being better for our environment, like adopting greener um, habits. Right. Well, you know, I actually think about that. And, and you know, I've worked in, in areas where, you know, behavior change is considered a positive thing. It's It's how do we motivate people to make changes. I guess the difference is that, you know, a lot of the approaches that we often see that are driven by behaviorism are, you know, they're, they're carrot and stick. They're very punitive often. Um, you know, they're about manipulating or changing behavior, you know, and, and of course I think about approaches like Ross Green, where it's like the approach is, you know, you know, yes, the, the end result might be to, to help somebody uh, develop skills or, overcome problems that might be, you know, giving them a, a difficult time. Uh, and that may be resulting in, in changing the behavior, but it's, you know, you can work with people to support learning the skills and, and, and whatnot, rather than just being kind of punitive. And, you know, I think about, um, and, and I think from, from the conversations we've had before, uh, you know, you're, you're pretty aligned with this as well, but I think about like the work about uh, Alfie, Alfie Cohen and, yes, you know, right. punished by rewards that Absolutely. rewards and consequences are both really the same thing. It's just the way of saying, if you do this, either I will give you this or this will happen to you. And it's a very manipulative way. And of course, yeah. you know, I, I know um, that many out there have had very negative experiences with behavioral um, sure. you know, programs and, and programs like ABA, where it's, it's really about compliance. It's about, um, you know, not, not supporting somebody, um, you know, it's not about teaching the skills, but sometimes it's about, um, you know, kind of forced compliance or, or, or right. whatnot. So, um, you know, I, I reckon, you know, I, I certainly recognize that in, in the work that I've done with you is that, mm -hmm. you know, the approach that you take seems to be very, you know, trauma informed and neuroscience aligned and, and supporting people. So, you know, I guess, you know, to that, you can, you can look at, you know, well, there, there sometimes are goals about changing behavior, whether it's our own or others. Right. Um, but it, it's all in how you approach it, I guess, that makes such a big difference um, in the long term um, outcome for um, both the person that you're working with, I guess, and, and yourself. 
Right. And so much is it, is it someone's goal or is it an right. opposed goal? Right. And, right. you know, or are you changing discrete behaviors that they want versus, you know, changing who they are as a person, right. which is what we don't want. And right. I think historically people have been satisfied with these very short-term changes that just um, cause future problems. And that's right. what a lot of the reward and consequence models are about these, um, you know, these unhelpful um changes and i've you know grown and learned and changed over the years you know i i like most people i think early on in their career we were trained and like bought into or i always say drink the kool-aid hmm. of rewards and consequences and but yeah doesn't really work and um like right his work about um punished by rewards or whatever hmm. it was like oh my gosh like life-changing right. and it made sense and a lot of the experiments on you know just these um extrinsic reward programs uh, just um they're fascinating and most people don't know them mm -hmm. i mean i think the the irony with kind of the school-based behavior plans we're going to talk about and i say this to staff if i have a good relationship with them that it's all about changing the adult's behavior. That's what the right. plan is. It, the child is just there, you know? It, this The plan is for the adults. It's a roadmap um, for them to follow. It's about changing their behavior so the student's more successful. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not, that's not the starting mindset Right. Yeah. I, I mean, very often, of course, you know, that the, and, and I know you're going to get into this, so we'll, we'll shift gears here in a second, but, you know, very often the focus is all about fixing or changing the child. And, 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 you know, like you mentioned a minute ago, um, sometimes really uh, damaging ways, you know, yeah. uh, you know, taking someone and trying to, um, you know, replace behaviors that may be adaptive behaviors right. for them and may be helpful behaviors to them. Um, you know, and, and I think that when you look at behavior plans, um, you know, they're, they're often, again, very focused on how do we fix the child? And, and, you know, it's not that children are broken. Children are sometimes trying to communicate, having a difficult time, don't have a learned skill. And, and how can we develop a plan to better support them? And, and you're right. So much has to change from that adult perspective. Um, but, but I appreciate you sharing kind of some of your, your story with us. And I, I know from, talking to you before, um, you know, again, you know, we all have different experiences and our experiences have evolved as, as we've been, you know, doing, you know, the work or, uh, you know, been involved with things as families. Um, you know, it, it's always, you know, I mean, I didn't know a whole lot about ABA uh, when I first started doing some of this work and, and really um, what influenced a lot of my thought process was when I began to hear the voices of autistic self-advocates and understanding the the damage and harm that was done by practice yeah. intended to help people yeah. uh, in which many times families and parents were being told was a, was a good approach. Um, but, you know, again, I think when you are able to step back and, and think about how do we support anybody? How would we want to be supported? Right. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and that's why I'm excited about what you have to, to share today. Because, you know, you, you've shared with me before that, you know, when you were in schools that there were these very kind of behaviorist driven behavior plans that really weren't helping kids. They were not setting them up to be successful. And I know a lot of your work was how do we how do we do something that will work and, and whether or not, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, whether or not you agree with some of the things that might be happening in schools, 
some of these uh, processes and things are in place. And certainly we may want to um, we may want to replace some of these things at some point. We may want to improve some of these things. Uh, you know, I think about the conversation I had with uh, Greg Santusi a, a few months mm -hmm. back uh, where we were talking about, you know, um, kind of from an occupational therapist point of view, yeah. you know, rather than just a behavior plan, we, we need an environmental, you know, a, a, an environmental assessment, right. you know, what might be getting in the way there. So I think there's a lot of room to change and improve these tools and processes. Um, but, you know, some of these things are very baked into the system right now. And, and certainly if we can improve the outcome for children by moving, you know, in steps away from things that are harmful to something that's supportive, I think that's really important work. And uh, that's why I'm so excited to have you kind of talk about mm -hmm. the work that you've been doing with, um, you know, behavior and behavior plans. So with that, why don't, unless you had anything else you wanted to no, say, yeah. Okay. And, and I appreciate you, you sharing that with us. And again, you know, sure. having and known I understand you and the concerns. I do. Yeah, no. And, and I do as well. I mean, you know, um, um, you know, but at the same time, having gotten to know you and the work that, that has influenced you and, and all the things that you're doing, uh, you know, I know where you are and, and where you're heading from and uh, appreciate you sharing that with us. So I am going to now bring up your presentation okay. uh, and if all goes well, and I will, put on the opening slide. I may not see you after I bring it up, um, but I will be here and might throw a random comment out uh, or a question or uh, I'll yeah, try not to, be... to be good, good. Okay. Yeah, it makes so, it more interesting. Let me go ahead and bring this up and I'm going to put this into presentation mode here. Okay. All right, and you can take it away. Uh, I can no longer see you, but uh, you should be able to see me and should be able to see your uh, presentation. Okay, and you can probably switch slides. Um, All right, sounds good. Too. So um, where do I want to start with all this? So let me start with the word behavior. Like somehow the word behavior has become to mean challenging behavior, which is so strange to behavior, but I haven't really made much progress on taking back that word. So I probably should give up, but I haven't been ready to do that. Uh, I, I don't understand why that's what it means. And I, so I think I said my first time working in a school was probably in 86 as a intern. I'm bad with years, so I could be wrong. But I, and then I volunteered, I think before that in schools. But I, I think what's striking to me is that things haven't changed in decades. How behavior is viewed is the same. Our interventions are the same. That is very strange because we know how much the world's changed, right? In all those years. So that's one thing I think about. I'm often in my head and um, I think about behavior all the time. Do, do, you, do you think, you know, I've, I've heard others suggest this, but, um, you know, do, do you think that um, in, in that view uh, that we've had for decades, that, that part of the problem is that there's always so much focus on the behavior um, that, that people are often not looking beneath the behavior or at the cause of the behavior? Yeah. I mean, isn't that really kind of part of that that decades old problem is just the focus is on the symptom and not, you know, kind of the underlying issue? Right. Except it, absolutely. But you think we talk about in other 
arenas, you know, like you can't judge a book by its cover. Look under, don't take, take things on a surface level, but with behavior, we're still so about just taking things on a surface level, you know, but in other, I think, viewpoints and relationships, we tell individuals to not judge people by what they look like on the surface, but mm -hmm. I guess we still do. So maybe, it's, I mean, I think some of this is human. It's just the problem with human nature. I was going to say the ugliness, but that sounded so negative. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and I'm trying to be less negative, but I'm not really accomplishing that. So, but we, we take things on the surface. We judge things on the surface all the time and behavior so much. And it stirs up all those feelings in us you know, of being powerless and not being able to control other people, which is what we want to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, I don't know. I, you would think we would have gotten better. And that whole emphasis on compliance, which you talked about, Guy, to me is strange too, because there's a Swedish psychologist that I really love, Bo Elvin. And, and he's talked about that no parent ever, you know, when they're asked, what, you, what, what do you want for your child when they're an adult? He says that like no parent in history has ever said, oh, I want my child to grow up to be a compliant adult, right? right? It's, it's not a value, but somehow we, we pretend that it's so important that kids are compliant to prepare them for adult life. When, when that's not true, that's made up. So it, you know, maybe unless we're preparing them to follow orders in the military, I don't know. Right, but, right. But 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 you're you're right, and, and I hope you don't mind me adding comments on. I know we've no, talked. I love and, it. Yeah, but you know, we, we very much do see that, right? We see that often in in school settings. Uh, we see that often in uh, law enforcement settings. Uh, you know, this these these demands for compliance that very often are what actually leads to a child becoming escalated, you know, uh, when, when compliance demands are being put on a child that is already, you know, beginning to have a difficult time. And if you add a trauma history to that or disability, uh, you know, the chance that that child may be hypervigilant and may be more yeah. apt to, to feel unsafe. Um, the, the compliance demands seem to be additive to the issue rather than, than helping um, but, you know, you're right. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's a really great point that, um, you know, what, you know, what parent is, uh, I want to raise a compliant child. Um, you know, the, the hope is, uh, you know, um, raising children that, um, you know, are are empathetic and are, you know, interesting and are, uh, have great ideas and, you know. Um, have meaningful relationships. Right. Right. Happy, right. I mean, but we don't want our kids to grow up to be compliant. It's very, it's very strange uh, to me too. And I'm not so compliant, but you're, you're right too. Just not just with that making things worse and we'll, and I'll get to it in my presentation, but so much of our, you know, interventions, the way we react m makes behavior get worse. It escalates behaviors, especially for those hypervigilant kids or the kids who need our support, the kids who have behavior plans uh, in public schools. We make things worse. And, and that's, you know, why I have my BCBA, why I want to work on these issues in Illinois most, um, and maybe I've read 
them from other states too. They're, you know, two, three pages. Mine are 18 pages, the ones I do for kind of the, the lawsuits. And um, because behavior is complicated and behavior is just a little tiny part of a human being. Like they, it needs to be about who they are as a person. And, and I view plans as something that should tell their story, that it's about understanding this human. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and you know we often hear the the idea that behavior is communication, and right. you know um, we need to hear what that voice is saying too. And, Absolutely. You know we're seeing these behaviors. Uh, it's not just a matter of how do we how do we you know change or or um, replace this undesirable. What's the behavior trying to tell us? Absolutely. Um, the yeah, lies. Right. 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 Yeah. Yes, and I will get to that. I will. So we're focused today. Our talk. And our conversation is going to be on these school-based behavior plans, um, too. So hopefully they'll help some people who's, you know, who write them or whose children have behavior plans. Uh, I'm happy to give these slides to anyone because I have examples of things, um, too. All right. I think you can turn that slide. So the sky's the limit. Mostly I put this in because I'm very bad at using pictures. So I'm like, all right, I better get a picture in before I get on my soapbox. But one of the things I thought, and probably would have been a better picture, is a blank canvas, right? Because it, it, it actually is about filling out this form. But I think it's so much better to think of it as a blank canvas that you are given or your child is given the, these few pieces of paper with um, headings. But I do think the sky is the limit. Don't feel you need to just fill out the form as it is. Make it work for you. Put all the information, and I'm going to talk about that, that you think will be supportive. Make it fit in those boxes. Um, so the sky is the limit. Don't, don't feel like constrained. So, so, so just to hit on that point, okay. one of the things I know that I've heard you say before is that, um, so many states have, um, behavior, you know, beh a functional behavior assessment or a, uh, behavior intervention plan are part of a defined process within the yeah. state. Um, you know, there, there may in fact be a better thing we could be doing aside from a, a functional behavior assessment Absolutely. or a behavior intervention plan, but it is in fact, defined in the state as something that they are required to do under certain circumstances. Yeah. And there's a certain process by doing that. Is that correct? Yeah. And um, in, in my state, it's part of the IEP in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And a lot of states, it's part of the, um, the IEP, which if it's a good plan can be really helpful. So every state is different, but, and might have different formats. I always have to use the format if it's part of a due process hearing, I mm -hmm. use whatever the school, the legal format is, the state's format. And then I often use the school's format too, because I think in my head, whether it's true or not, it will help the school staff be able to generalize what I suggested and what I wrote if they're familiar with how they've done things in the past, so it's not as big a leap, if at least the, you know, it looks familiar, the format, mm -hmm. I think it's better, it's easier for staff to get their heads around it versus having to see something totally different 
Uh, and that's kind of just, I think, where we are right now in the schools I work in. Maybe in other states and other areas, people have gone farther and are more progressive. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's a prescribed process and there's often forms. Yeah. That, so so really what you're you're saying here is, um, you know, what, what you want to do is it's not a matter of... Um, uh, it's really a matter of how do you how do you actually use the tools that that you're required to use, and then come up with a plan that's going to be helpful rather than harmful to the um, the child. Yeah, and I think it's possible. I think it is possible, and that's what I'm hoping people will take away from this little talk today. Okay. All right, you can change it. All right, so I did use a picture. I'm on record for using a picture uh, too. So behavior, right? It's, um, it's seen as the problem instead of a signal that there's a problem. And Ross Green talks a lot about, you know, the behavior is the signal, it's the fever. It just tells us that there's a problem. So, you know, if we address the problem only, it, it's not going to result in, in real change. It's just what I've seen is that that challenging behavior or behavior of concern or whatever the term we want to use is, is just substituted by something else. Sometimes the adults feel happy, but because the one behavior, but it doesn't really solve anything. So we always have to look at behavior as a signal. Sometimes that's a real paradigm shift for, for the adults in the picture too. All right, you can... You can move since now I don't even remember what the next one. Oh, yeah, because when we um, I, wait, well, let's go to whack a mole and then go back to stuff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, my, I pressed once and I didn't go anywhere. And then uh, don't you worry. It's just yeah. I like this slide. So because when we do that, when we just focus on behavior in my head, we play whack a mole. We just get rid of something and that's something else, um, you know, pops up. And then. Unfortunately, what often happens when I'm playing whack-a-mole is then the child gets more blamed. He's not only hitting, but now he's running out of the room. He's not only hitting and running out of the room, now he's, you know, calling, swearing at the teacher. And it's because we cause these by doing these um, focused on just the behavior kind of approaches. Yeah, and missing the communication. I mean, you know, right. again, frustration escalates, you know. Absolutely. If, if you're frustrated because something is not happening or you're trying to communicate something that people aren't listening to, that frustration escalates over time. Um, and, and it makes sense, I guess, that the, you know, behaviors would escalate as well mm -hmm. as, you know, a child might be desperately, you know, trying to communicate a need uh, or a, um, you know, a, an issue. Uh, and not being feeling heard. Right, right. Or just the prolonged time spent in a situation that's not working for you. Right. You're feeling so uncomfortable. And if people aren't going to help you, you know, uh, feel better, things are going to get worse to the point where lots of kids I know around the country just can't go to school. They just can't. Mm. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. they, they've just suffered too much mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, too. So I think we were on that other slide, you know, I, I love this too. So in other countries, um, the UK, they call it stress support. Uh, 
plans. And this comes from Studio 3, that guy and I work with. And it's just such a nicer term, right? It's about stress and it's about support. Because intervention, even though to me, this is just to me, the word intervene doesn't sound like a bad word in my head, but intervention does. It, it sounds uh, aggressive. Hmm. So I, and I'm guessing other people have that in their head too. We have, you know, we need intervention. So I just think stress support plans sounds so much better. Sometimes I've written like behavior intervention plan and under it with a parenthesis um, stress support plans, but I don't think uh, it's gone over so well. But one of the things with plans, I want to make sure I say uh, in case I forget later, I like there being a written plan. I like the idea of how to support this student being spelled out in writing all in one place. And I would talk about, like, I like to include the um, OT part in a plan too, because that way a substitute teacher has it, the cafeteria lady, the bus driver, just people know how to support this child. Because I think what happens too is when humans don't know what to do, that causes them to be more punitive. Mm -hmm. So we want to give them things to do uh, so they don't fall back on, you know, that those kind of old ways and that kind of bad parenting approach that mm -hmm. we see in schools all the time. All right, we can move ahead. So with the process, it it's a strange phenomenon to me in that there's so much emphasis, even though I just said I like everything written, but there's emphasis in like rushing to fill out the forms and not about talking about things and figuring them out and uh, and understanding the child. And as part of that, you know, you look at the behavior because that's a sign that the child's struggling, but Sometimes it's hard to have those conversations, even just within staff, staff administration, staff administration and parents. But that to me is what I love about behavioral work is really figuring out like who is this person and what is what are they communicating through their behavior and what what's making this so hard for them and really having these ongoing conversations, not like one and done. It needs to be a living document. It needs to be an ongoing conversation where someone says, um, oh, I think I did this. And this is beautiful when I see it in the school. You know, the teacher saying, I tried this and this seemed to really work. I figured this out. And he just, you know, seemed less stressed and, was it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's beautiful. And it needs to be added to a plan the same way as when a, a staff member does something and is courageous and honest enough to um, to say and realize like, oh my gosh, I did this and that just made it worse. So that should be put in a plan, but it's really not done that way. It's written, it's put in enough file, sometimes not even looked at. And, and what a symptom of the problem to me is that uh, they need to be setting specific, 
But so often students switch schools and the new school follows the old plan, which always makes me believe they have no idea what the plan's supposed to look like and what the purpose is. If they think it can translate um, from one school to another school, <laughs> it makes no sense with different, or even the eighth grade to high school when the demands are so different. Right, right. Uh, you know, they don't get it. Yeah. Can, can I ask you a question yeah. about the process? Because yeah. one of the things that sticks out to me is that very often in the process, it seems like we are um, missing the right people. And, and, and part of the right people is, you know, under, you know, what, so what we often see happen in these situations is, um, you know, a, a functional behavior assessment is, is held. Uh, maybe somebody observes the child or, um, you know, talks to others that have worked with the child, um, but may not engage at all directly with the child to understand what's what's making it difficult for them or where they're having difficulties. And, and we also often see this process of of kind of the, you know, the ABC process and looking at very, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of standard functions of behavior, um, you know, like, uh, you know, attention seeking or, um, you know, avoidance or whatever it may be. And then an adult hypothesis comes out. So it seems right. like sometimes we're, we're missing the wrong people as part of the process. Um, and uh, so what are your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, how, how do you make sure that the, the child's voice is being heard um, and that other useful, um, you know, uh, you know, other useful uh, input might be heard and not just coming up with an adult hypothesis, but actually working with the child to, to help solve those problems. Right. Yeah. And I'll talk more about the hypothesis part in, okay. in a few minutes, but the process. So it's a good question. It's hard. I usually compensate by talking to a ton of people <laughs> and trying to look for themes between many people, including the family as mm -hmm. well, uh, to, to try to understand the people that seem to get the child, understand them best, when possible, mm -hmm. you know, or, or I like having the child's voice mm -hmm. in it. I often, I do things differently for each kid. I'm not a big one size it's all person. Some kids meeting some stranger that they're going to meet once is right. not in their best interest. Right, right. And I don't do that. People, some kids have really wanted to talk to me and I'm, and I do that. I'm happy to, I think having a child's voice in there is, is critical. I think that starts at the beginning and is through the whole process. You know, the child has to be part of it, but I think we have to be really careful how it's done. I mean, I'm very uh, big on collaboration. I love it. However, I think children have been hurt in the name of collaboration. One in this last school district, um, one of the uh, complaints about me is I didn't want the child to attend this meeting, the IEP meeting. So this is this is a, a student who has difficulty talking about his behavior because he's you know been criticized for, you know, 
years and years and years and um, about his behavior. So to me, thinking of two adults talking to him would feel badly to him, let alone being in you know, a room with 16 adults, two lawyers, all this tension hmm. talking about his behavior. And so I was public that I didn't think he should attend. So I was in trouble for that. Hmm. So it, um, it depends. I think you need to feel through the process mm-hmm. that the child's voice is, is in it. And, and trust is such a big part of behavior change, right? And we're going to talk about that probably in interventions. So it's figuring out who the student trusts the most. And that person mm-hmm. can play a role in that process. Too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of my thought. But we, but we will probably do that, um, talk about that a little bit later too. But the process is ugly. They're meeting, you know, anyone who's been in an IEP and, and, you know, or, or those of us who have sat on both sides of the table, I always say too, like, it's horrible. It's horrible for everyone. You know, it's just such a pleasant, maybe puppies, they make it better. (laughs) So, um, that's the best part of IEPs. Um, All right. So, the question of are you better off with a formal behavior plan? So I had said that in Illinois, the behavior plan is part of the IT. I know it's not the same in all states, but when it's part of the IEP, it does provide legal protection because students can't um, the, the plan has to be followed. Students, um, if their behavior is deemed part or related to their disability in a school, there's different safeguards. I often think, too, that students are, are students benefit with a good behavior plan, not so much with a, a bad behavior plan, so to make it so binary. But if, if you know the players at school and there's some folks you think that get your child and can be part of a behavior plan process, or it's a school that really is inclusive to the parent viewpoint, it might be a good idea to have a formal behavior plan, even though it might be a crummy format, to have everything spelled out in one place on how to support your child, especially if you can use, you know, it as a blank canvas uh, and do it the way we're going to talk, we're talking about today. All right. So the problem with most plans is that they're not how we talk about it today. And they're written the way they've always been written. Uh, People go to a workshop. I've given some of those workshops. You know, often it's one day, two days. So they're just written this way. I think that drop down menus on computers have made the world a much worse place. And behavior plans, because they're written with all these drop down men- menus, that people have a harder time thinking outside the box. Many schools think they think outside the box, but I just think they're thinking inside a different box. So they haven't changed. It's hard 
for some people to think differently. Sometimes people are worried they'll get in trouble if they think differently than their coworkers or the administration. So they don't want to talk about their viewpoints. Many, many plans are very simplistic. They're shockingly similar across states, across ages, across schools. Uh, some are because they're all in one school, cut and pasted, uh, but they're even across schools. They're so similar and uh, that's really unfortunate. And many behavior plans, as I said earlier, aren't even used. They're written, they go in a file. You know, the, it's, a, the, um, it's accomplished, you know, they can check it off that they're supposed to do a plan. They did a plan, it's over and the staff don't know. I've also worked in schools that there was so much turnover that it was the plan was written maybe in May. And when I've gone in October, nobody had looked at the plan. There were all different people in the room or in the school or in administration. So there's lots of plans, uh, problems with plans. And, and some of them are that in a typical plan, there's so many behaviors in, you know, there's this concept of target behavior, which we'll talk about, but there's so many behaviors rolled in to the target behavior. Uh, I think often there's somewhere between nine and 13 different behaviors written in to the target behavior. And in terms of how often, it, the behavior is displayed. It's pretty much all day. And when asked about settings, it's all settings. The function is either attention or escape or both. And people are trained that you're supposed to do attention or escape because the original training is that challenging behavior is to get something or avoid something. That's kind of the basic training and behavior. And that leads to just escape or attention somehow. Many typical plans include all this um, judgmental comments. That really makes me uh, crazy and upset. But, you know, Johnny can do a good job when he wants to or so he <laughs> can get along with peers when she chooses to. All these judgmental comments. Uh, which I do not like. Most focus on rewards and consequences. Some behavior plans are only rewards and consequences. Few include new and creative supports and solutions. And many behavior plans include interventions and procedures that can result in seclusion and restraint. Hmm. So we're gonna talk about ways to do it differently. And as I said before, it's really about the adults. And that's sometimes news for folks that I look at a plan as a roadmap for the adults to follow. It's about their behavior. It's not really about the children's behavior. So, so most of you know there's kind of two points. So there's the FAB or the FBA, depending on where you are, which is uh, supposed to be about how to understand the behavior which is a great concept because we want to understand the behavior. When I started working in the field, often schools just had a behavior plan 
without the behavior assessment or analysis part, they didn't even understand that there should be this part of understanding the child's behavior before there's a plan on what we're going to do about it. So that's the first part. It should be about the why and understanding the behavior. And it should also be about the, the human because a person is more than their behavior. It's not always how it is, but that's to me how this first part. And then the second part is what the adults are gonna do. And it's supposed to be about eliminating or decreasing the challenge of the behavior. And the behavior is really, I say it later, but what I wanna add too, it's, you know, we've talked about it's a sign as signal, but for data purposes, how I look at it is the target behavior is a representation. It's something that can be counted to tell the staff if they're on the right track. So it's not that that's so important. It's just a representation that there's a problem. So that's how so I view it. And I'll talk more about it too. So for... For CPS fans on the balance, um, Lives in the Balance website too. Oh, did we, are we way ahead or on my page? I'm sorry. Um, did, did I go to a wrong slide here? Um, there's something about CPS. Keep going. Oh. Oh, it looks like there's a, a slide in between there. Oh, all right. And so I think I did that one. Going back to CPS. And then we'll okay. start. All right. I have no idea. I, but it doesn't really matter, right? So just quickly, CPS fans. You uh, and if you could define CPS for us, because oh. I, I, I know a lot of people hear that and think child protective services. So oh, It's funny because I think Chicago Public Schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. I, 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 I've almost wished it would be renamed Plan B instead of CPS. <laughs> you know, I think CPS sometimes is really a confusing. Um, it totally is. Yeah. yeah. Great, child protective services. Um, yes, so Ross Green and um, Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, which people call CPS, they have on their website um, a sample behavior plan that can be used for their model uh, that focuses you know, really on, on their model. So it talks about unsolved problems, lagging skills, factors that maintain problem behaviors, they have plan B interventions, and I'm hoping on the next page I have the website, but maybe not if our pages are in different order. Let's see. It'll be a surprise. What's next? Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, the ALSEP, the assessment of lagging skills and also problems is there and the website for people. So if anyone wants any of these. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't mind, yeah. you know, the, the thing I love about uh, Dr. Green's work, of course, is that uh, it starts with a very simple philosophy, and the philosophy is kids do well if they can. And, and that's important here because, you know, where where Dr. Green's work really focuses on is trying to understand if a kid is not doing well, what's getting in their way? You know, do they have a lagging skill? Do they have an unsolved problem? Uh, rather than just coming up with an adult solution about how to have a uh, a child change their behavior, we need to understand the whys, oops, as you would say, oops, I'm, I, I'm going all sorts of places here. Um, but, you know, the, of course, the, the flip side of kids do well if they can is this idea that kids do well if they want to. Right. And it seems like very often in, in the behavior world, there's a lot of belief that all behavior is volitional, that it's all a choice. It's all a matter of children, you know, making choices and decisions. When in fact, there's a lot of other reasons why 
you know, a child might be behaving differently. And I know you're probably going to be getting into that as well. But I think just that that lens there of how you look at it, you know, rather than just looking for that simple functional behavior, you know, what's getting in the kid's way? How can we help them? And that that ALSOP that you mentioned is certainly a great tool to identify, you know, and what are the lagging skills? What are the unsolved problems? How can we actually make a plan to help the child develop um, you know, develop the skills and the abilities to solve the problems that are affecting their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, just a great mindset, you know, for, for everyone too. And for parents too, um, as well, even though when I was in the training, probably 15 years ago with Dr. Green, I wrote on my, my, um, evaluation that they should include parents do well if they can. Mm -hmm. And and teachers and others. I mean, a lot of people do well if they can, right? Right. Um, People need tools. People need help, skills, all that too. And and to question things that don't make sense or don't seem to be working. I mean, too often we end up in systems where we have approaches that aren't working for the kids, the teachers, the staff, uh, yet they persist because it's the way things are done. Right. Um, And they've always been done that way. Right. Right. Yes, too. And then I'm just really quickly, and I'm not going to explain it because Dr. Stephen Porges and Mona um, Delahook do such a better job. Just another kind of mental framework is the polyvagal theory when you think about behavior. That, you know, challenging behavior can be viewed as part of an evolutionary process to survive and thrive. That it's all about feeling safe. And, you know, one of the things, um, and and you can change it, the slide too, is, you know, that we've learned and all these these experts, you know, when they talk about neuroception and the polyvagal response is that children need to feel safe in school. And then I think when we're talking about behavior in school and behavior plans, we need to then remember that children can only learn if they feel safe mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. children go to school to learn. So mm-hmm. unless we think about that safety part, then, then we're just keep doing these things over and over again to have the kids learn and when they can't, when they, they just can't right. logically learn. And then we're yeah. frustrated, you know, yeah, you, you know, there's so much to this, this, and, you know, I, I appreciate your, uh, your thoughts here. And, and of course, Mona Delahook's book, uh, Beyond Behaviors is a, a really great uh, tool for people that want to learn more about, um, you know, the polyvagal theory and the idea of neuroception. But, you know, really, the, the simple idea here is that, you know, if a kid doesn't feel safe, a kid's not going to be able to do well, if a kid doesn't right. feel safe, and, and there's a lot of contributing factors to that, you know, uh, it, it's thinking about uh, trauma. And, and you know, yeah. oftentimes we see this trauma comes from the way children are treated. Uh, the trauma can come from compliance-based approaches to, um, you know, uh, working with kids. The trauma can come from, uh, you know, a home. The trauma can come from a lot of different places. But, you know, trauma, disability, um, you know, all of these things can affect a child's um, 
likelihood of, of feeling safe. I mean, you know, I often think about, um, you know, children like my own, my son, uh, who's autistic, he's a fantastic kid. Um, but, you know, part of being autistic might mean some some communication differences. Um, and imagine how frustrating that might be to live in, and, and, you know, imagine being non-speaking. You know, we see a lot of uh, non-speaking children that are, um, you know, being restrained, being res uh, secluded, having other very negative interventions. And, you know, imagine the frustration of having things to say and having, um, you know, thoughts that, um, you know, you're not able to convey or people aren't hearing or listening. And again, when that behavior is communication, wow, um, you know, the, the, I guess it's, again, it, it's moving beyond that idea that, you know, all these behaviors are just the kid making a choice to do something. Right. There's so much more beneath the surface, right? So much more. And what you didn't say is trauma caused by seclusion and restraint. Right. And, and or other punitive practices, right, right, or, you know, right. um, you know, compliance based approaches or other things that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I often talk about it, about kind of the trauma circle, which is that, um, you know, oops, my That's right. well, yeah, trying to remind me of things now. Okay. Um, but, you know, that that you might already have a child that has had some trauma history. And because of that trauma history. Um, you know, they might already be hypervigilant and, you know, the, the more these negative things are done, uh, the more you run into those situations where, um, they may be further traumatized. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So next there's a section about strengths in, in a typical behavior plan. Usually they're kind of done quickly. But I think they should be real and plentiful. They shouldn't be backhanded compliments, kind of like that one. You know, I said before that when he wants to, he can really follow directions, those kind of things. Those are not strengths. And I think as a, a parent or an advocate, you can use this section also to paint a, a picture of who the individual is. Because again, you're trying to get everything you want to say fit in this format too. And then the next section is target behaviors. So I do one or two. Again, it's because it's it's just a representation of something that's happening, just to know if we're we're our supports are helping. That's how I look at it. That's you know very different than kind of the traditional. But they should be clearly defined. A lot of people think there should be severity measures, so things aren't all counted the same way just to make it more accurate. Because if we're gonna count and we're gonna take data, which we'll talk a, a minute more about too, that it might as well be accurate. So these are things to make it more accurate. But I think we want to really push it as being representational. So it doesn't matter so much if it's the behavior that's most problematic to the school or the one that's happening the most or the easiest to change. That can be a discussion, but it just needs to be really clear, too. So, so on that issue of target behaviors, so this is just me, but I never agree to non-compliance being a target behavior because that just triggers me. Um, and you can go to the next one, too. And then I think, as Guy said earlier, too, you have to be so careful in adaptive be behaviors being included as target behaviors. Sometimes they're rolled in in the description. Often they're in the form of like 
stalling, um, stalling or distracting or postponing a demand. And those to me are really adaptive, you know, until uh, students use them all the time until they can kind of process, can they handle this? How do they ask for help? How do they figure out kind of what to do, what to do in the stressful situation, including how to get the help they need? So I hate, I hate when that's included. I never agree to crying being part of a target behavior because that's just cruel. I don't agree to shutting down and not even not responding, right? All those things that neurologically our students do in their own, you know, attempt for safety and well-being. So I don't agree to any of those things when I'm in meetings. I don't always get my way in meetings, but I I push those things. And those and non-compliance is often. I didn't put that I I don't agree with defiance or defiant behavior, but that's true too. I never kind of agree to that, but I didn't add that to the slide. And and there's also rarely enough talk, if any talk on precursor behaviors and those are those little signs that the child is under stress and they might happen before the target behavior, the more problematic or behavior or behavior of concern. And that's where I want the staff to, to jump in and offer support to the student when there's just that, that, you know, bubbling up of stress or tension to know the child's looks and these little signs or how they hold their shoulders to really understand that child so they can offer that support so that the child you know doesn't have to use their energy to communicate it to and and this you know which is kind of what guy had talked about too that it's all about what's underneath the iceberg and the behavior is just the tip of the iceberg it, it's um it's just that little tiny bit and this is all you know mona's book is all about this too and then the next section in most plans is about the setting a lot of behavior plans say you know that the child exhibits it this and the classroom, the hallway, lunch, gym, they put recess, they put everything there. But you want them to think more specifically and you want to understand the setting part because that's going to be part in this environmental section that, that comes later. So whatever settings are listed needs to be addressed um, in the plan. So this is more in that first part, the understanding the behavior, the FBA, but then in the plan, we're going to talk about how to support them in every setting that they need support. So antecedents is the biggie, as, as Guy mentioned. They're, they're generally misleading, you know, in my opinion, because they're just what happened right before. And humans are just more complicated than that. It's usually a combination or a confluence of events, you know, many factors that all build up that happen and trigger kind of that target behavior. And sometimes I think they're just really silly because what happens before a student doesn't follow a direction is that they're given a direction, 
right? I mean, but that's kind of just silly. But that would be the antecedent. They don't do their work. It's because they were just given work. So, so it's it's a concept that to me doesn't make sense. Well, we also hear things like, um, and we especially hear this with kids that are being restrained or secluded, um, that you know it just came out of nowhere. Um, okay. You know, um, and, and you know, I, I I like to believe that um, most problems, uh, most difficulties are are things that. Um, you know, we, we can, um, you know, they shouldn't be surprises. We can learn about, you know, where does this child have difficulty? And, you know, um, I guess Dr. Green would call those kind of the unsolved problems, but, you know, uh, child's having difficulty coming back in from recess. Um, you know, um, child's having difficulty sitting next to, you know, um, Bobby in math class. Um, you know, some of these things, um, you know, if, if they they seemingly are coming out of nowhere, then, then you know, we're, we're missing something, right? But it's our problem, right. And right. that's what I always say to staff. Yeah, if it's coming out of nowhere, we're missing something. Right. If it feels that way. Yeah, because things don't just come out of nowhere. Right. They just don't. Right. So we need to figure it out. It's on us. And then when we do figure it out, to me, that's kind of, it's such an empowering thing. I feel really fortunate that I'm able to be part of this process to make the students life easier at school because uh, that's what we want. Mm. We want this look at uh, problems that are happen happening in school to be solved to make students happier and have a better quality of life and feel better when they wake up in the morning mm. to go to school. That, mm -hmm. that's the intent, that should be the intent of all this too. Mm. So antecedents and um, often should be a, a picture, one of my few pictures next guy. Let's see if it comes up. Yay, see? The concept of the last straw. And that's often what we see is just things build up over time. Some days we're all able to handle things that on other days we can't. It's just how humans are. We can't pretend that the kids are so different. It things build up. It's how it works. So consequences is the next section. And it really means in the behavior world, not how we typically use the word consequence. It means just what happens after behavior. It doesn't mean punishment or disciplinary procedure. And it's thought that these consequences maintain a behavior over time. I really don't think that what happens after matters so much. I think not to the kids who have behavior plans, because if they could do better, they would be doing better. So I don't think it's so important what happens afterwards. I think we want them to feel okay, and we want to repair relationships. Right. You know, I hear you when you say it, it, you know, I mean, defining consequences is something that comes after. And and I agree with you. Unfortunately, it right. seems to me that most people uh, associate 
a consequence uh, and, and honestly with a punishment. You know, how many times do we hear kids need consequences? They need consequences. E even discipline is is improperly used. I mean, discipline right. comes from a root, root meaning to teach, right? Uh, but, but you know, discipline is often very punitive. And, you know, the punitive approaches then seem to, um, well, we don't seem to, they, they do have a very negative effect on kids. And we need to be equipping them with with skills and um, helping them solve problems, not just putting these. You know, a lot of these kids have had many consequences throughout their their lives. You know, how do we how do we shift the adults away from this concept? Because I mean, even adults, I think, um, you know, in a school setting, you say consequence, and and you know, you you and I could say, well, that just is something that comes yeah. next. But but the the idea there is the consequence is negative. Now maybe sometimes it's it's something like a incentive or reward. But again, you know, I mean, what, what do we learn about those things is that they're not really solving problems, you know, um, giving me a, a sticker because, um, you know, I, I happen to meet an expectation you have doesn't really necessarily equip me to better meet that expectation in the future. No, no, right. I know. And I wish we could change the, the wording on all this because, right. right. For most people, right. It means a punishment. And, right. And the opposite of that is we're letting him get away with it. Right, right, right. And that's kind of that, that kind of thinking that leads to such, such problems mm -hmm, too. And one thing I, I don't have in this presentation that I include in my general behavior ones, uh, which I need to revamp because I keep changing how I look at things. Anyhow, is Often what happens after a challenging behavior in the schools I go to is what's called processing, but often what it feels like to me is shaming that the child has to meet with an adult, say what he or she did wrong, what he should have done what he's going to do better next time, apologize to whoever was hurt or impacted, even if they weren't hurt or impacted. And it just feels to me like shaming, where I think that time could be used so much better in terms of repairing relationships, making sure the kid feels okay. And they're mm -hmm. just doing okay, because if they had a problem, it's because they weren't doing okay. All right. So, what are your thoughts on kind of the um, restorative approaches and, and you know, really, um, you know, um, yeah, I guess, what, what are your thoughts on kind of the restorative approaches of, of working? Uh, you know, again, it's not about shame, but it's understanding, um, you know, impact and, um, trying to work with people to build relationships and things like that. Um, is that have a role in this? So it's an interesting question because I keep trying, I keep reading about it and it's great in paper on paper, but I've never seen it really in action and I don't know why. So I don't know if the schools I've worked in don't use it. But I've never seen, I read about it. Mostly I read about it a lot because I'm curious because it sounds good in paper and I've never seen it, which seems mm -hmm. odd. Mm -hmm. So so I'd like to know more. Yeah, I, I've been reading lately um, 
a book and I'll, I'll hold it up here. I don't know if you can see it, um, but it's a book by yeah. Joe Broomer um, and it's um, building a trauma informed restorative school. And I'm not, I'm not as far along. I haven't finished it yet, but uh, you know, certainly uh, it seems like some of these principles um, the, you know, the, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of really good ideas behind some of these principles and, and, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in, in learning more about yeah, me too. You know, those I, kind of approaches. I'd love to see it. And I, when I was trying to read about it, one of my thoughts, which is a thought I often have is that it all comes down to who the people are and their skills and their temperament and their approach, because following procedures looks so different any of this with by who's doing it right, their right. voice tone their body language just their vibe basically right right so, yeah yeah i'm thinking about um you know professor mcdonald and and kind of the importance of um you know and the importance of the adult um you know again the focus is often on the kids but you know the the, the focus on ourselves um, when working with kids is so critical because, you know, we know that even our emotions can be contagions, you know, I mean, it, we're escalated. We're not going to be helping a child that's, that's feeling escalated. Um, so, you know, it really is about kind of having a, uh, you know, a calm and it's about relationships, I guess, too, Absolutely. you know, and who does that child have a, a really strong relationship with and, and feel, feel safe with, you know, if, if the child's not feeling safe, getting past any of these things is really um, nearly impossible. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Too. So going on another section kind of on the forms is the setting events and setting events are not generally understood in the people I work with. It's about what sets the stage for the student to exhibit the target behavior, which, you know, is the same thing as meaning to feel stress. So allergies, bad sleep, um, you know, bad night's sleep, being in a different parent's home or grandparent's home, medication changes, all these things that happen maybe the day before, the week before, the weekend, the night before. And again, like everything in a plan, in my mind, it's a heads up to the adults to know these things so they can change their behavior. So they can say, you know, we were going to do a spelling test today, but let's just wait till another day. So to lower demands and to increase supports. So it's not just to like talk about it among staff or even with the child. It's to change our behavior for mm -hmm. the child. But it, but I, I rarely see it's done. So So this is a little bit which we um, talked briefly about with that function and the hypothesis of function, which is a big part. It's a guess of why the kid's doing it. And because it's asked leads people to guess that the behavior is much more intentional than it is. So, what I do for workaround options, and none are great, but I put down that the behavior, target behavior is not intentional. The behavior is communication. The child was seeking safety. Um, and then if it's thought to be the child is attention seeking, <laughs> in the past plan, 
I, I, I apologize. My, my dogs were coming back in and apparently deciding it was a great place to come play by the microphone. So that is totally sorry. fine. Sorry about that. Everyone's a critic. It's fine if they're That's uh, right. if they're not liking what I say. I'm, I'm I can handle it. They were very excited, so you know oh, they, might, they might have actually liked it. They're wagging their tail. Yeah. Okay. Babies. Uh, so if a child, if, you know, in past reports or the staff say the child seeking attention, I rephrase that as the child is seeking help and assistance. If the child, you know, is trying to avoid, I rephrase it is, you know, that the child's trying to um, avoid a situation that they can't cope with or emotionally manage or, you know, that kind of thing or the students trying to decrease stress and anxiety. So I just put as much language that I want the reader to have to combat either the simplicity of escape or attention or that it's intentional. If, if things worked better in schools, we could talk about you know, seeking attention and escape and avoiding in a better way, but we're not there. Right, right. You know, because it's not just understood that that needs to be viewed along with why. Why would the student need to uh, avoid or escape? And how do we make the situation so they don't need to? Why are they seeking adult attention? How do we help them get it? Or are they really them? seeing connection? Do they, do right. they need, do right. they need a, a strong anchoring relationship? To right, exactly. That's a great a difficult time. Too. Like with the wise, you know. Right, right. And, and then it's our job to give it to them. Right. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm thrown back to a time that I was um, looking at or hearing um, a behavioral assessment that was done on my son and, and thinking about how these functions were being used and listening to uh, someone, you know, basically say, well, you know, the, your son was attention seeking. They were telling me what had happened. And of course, I know my son and that's not an attention seeking behavior at all. Um, you know, there, there was, there was a lot that they missed in the, the, you know, what led up to the behavior they were seeing, but, but I think it, it really is a, uh, oversimplification that leads people to make assumptions and leads people to blame the child. That's really, really, um, bad for everyone involved. It is. It, yeah. it, it is. And when I'm in a really bad mood in these meetings, when they say like, you know, so-and-so was seeking attention. I go, great. That's wonderful. That's what I want for her. Just <laughs> really like, because mm -hmm. most of my kids, like they, you know, it's so rare that most of the kids I worked in are seeking attention just for attention. Right. I mean, that would, you know, they generally want to crawl under the desk most of the time they're in school right. because they're so uncomfortable. So. Right. Right. Well, you know, and I always thought that, um, uh, you know, Dr. Green kind of, talks about how different kids respond in different ways. And and he always called them the lucky ones and yeah. the unlucky ones. But kind of, yeah, talking about how some kids might, uh, you know, um, might shut down or cry or, you know, um, do something that rather than getting them punished, gets them empathy. And other kids, when they're feeling overwhelmed or stressed or not having their needs met, might might try to run away or might 
you know, fight back or might have other behaviors that then get them them punishment. You know, the what's happening below the surface can be very similar in, oh. in both of those settings. Um, but the reaction is, is so much different. And yeah. it seems like it continues to, you know, propagate this then, um, you know, um, response that just further and further makes it difficult for the child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's all about the questions that need to be asked, the understanding, the figuring it out, what the child is needing and why, and all the work that adults have to do. And, and I do understand it's hard for the adult that's teaching a class without other support from adults to have to be figuring this out, which is why schools really need to have strong teams and time for these discussions and supportive administration because it's hard to, you know, some of the schools have, you know, 20 kids in the class to be teaching mm -hmm. and trying to figure this out. It, it just feels like too much of a, a luxury for, for a lot of teachers. Um, and I get that too. Um, and understanding, you know, that, that safety part, I think is still really new in how teachers are trained. To, to look at kind of behavior too. So, so that's kind of the assessment part. And then the plan in Illinois, and I don't know if it's everywhere, that the, one of the first questions on the plan is if it's a skill deficit or a performance deficit. And I don't like the question, but why the question can be helpful is that you can sometimes get a read on the people in the room if they say it's a skill deficit versus the kid really has the skills. They're just choosing not to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Diane. Am I on the right slide here? No, go to the next one. Okay. 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 All right. Thanks. Yeah. So I always push for a skill deficit. Um, one school person said, yeah, you probably think that all the kids have its skill deficit then by your reasoning. And I'm like, mm -hmm, I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, you know, there's also this assumption because a uh, child can do, uh, can, can meet an expectation in one situation that they can heat, meet the expectation in every situation. There's so much more that is below yeah. the surface that can affect that. Um, but, you know, there, there clearly is this idea that once a child has met an expectation, they should forever uh, under any circumstance, be able to meet that expectation. I know. I, I need to take a lot of deep breaths in these meetings, too, especially when that comes up. Well, I know he can handle assemblies because mm -hmm. last Wednesday he handled the assembly. That was kind mm -hmm. of like, oh, practice my coping skills because, right, people, yeah, they hate inconsistency. And, right, if a child dares to do it once, then people think they can always do it. And, mm -hmm. and that is worrisome. I also talk a lot in these plans about proactive versus reactive behaviors that I think plans should be 99% proactive about supporting the student when there's any signs of stress, understanding those setting events, um, looking at the environment and making modifications, altering teaching style and demands and providing support. That all should be done proactively before there's a challenging or target behavior. 
to. And I think most of the people who kind of hopefully are watching um, also are kind of tied into the key features because I know they're my key features and they're generally the alliances. Um, Values too, that the key features of a plan should be safety at the forefront, relationship-based, the co-regulation should be evident that it's about emotional regulation, collaboration with the individual, looking at those underlying skill deficits, and really respecting neurodiversity and having all the interventions and the culture of the school and the classroom uh, trauma-informed. Mm -hmm. can, can I can I just mention something yeah, on the, the safety? Um, you know, when, when um, unfortunately, um, you know, my son was restrained and secluded in the name of safety. And um, you know, what I would say to you is that our, our state law, of course, says that a child should not be restrained or secluded unless it's uh, a situation that involves imminent serious physical harm, which is a life or death uh, kind of situation. And and safety is uh, often a word used. My son actually hates the word safety now uh, because of all the negative things that yeah. happened to him in the name of safety. And, and while you, you I phrase that to say the student feeling safe. Right, right, right. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, good to know. I'm going to redo that slide. I kind of thought that's where you were headed, but you know, it, it's also one of those words that can be used in a way to kind of defend doing right. things that are really not very right. not, not safe at all for the students. So I just wanted to make sure that that was. Yes, I'm going to change that yep. today. Yes, from a polyvagal um, safety perspective, the gotcha. student feels safe. Because Absolutely. They can only regulate their emotions if they're if they're safe. Yeah. And from what you're saying too, it you know, because people can't think when they don't feel safe. Teachers, if their emotions are lit up, mm -hmm. they can't make distinctions between if they're really safe or not. And Absolutely. They can't make those calls too. Um, too. So I like this slide. It's uh, Andy McDonald from Studio Three. Manage the stress, not the behavior. Oh, I thought you were referring to the picture. Oh, being, yeah, no, I love Andy, that. Andy I use that picture every time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the scream. This is how I feel often in these meetings. Uh -huh. um, but it's supposed to be the client's stress, too. But it's definitely how I, I feel. Um, and then there's, right, the summary part. Generally, schools just put everything in the entire school and classroom that they've tried, but it should be more about what they've really tried to support this child. Um, I think I should go faster since the time is going. Um, two. And then the next section is, uh, is, is a hard one because it's about that replacement behavior thing, which is hard to talk about replacement behaviors without making it seem that the behavior is a choice. And talk about, yeah, things that kids should hate is that, like, make a good choice, that adults always say. Mm -hmm. So we have to be, be careful with them. What it means is that what a student should do that serves the same purpose as the challenging behavior. Even in traditional plans, most schools don't understand it and they don't do it right. Um, so what we want to do is kind of look at the behavior as being a signal 
that there's a problem and see if we can find a replacement behavior that targets that underlying problem, like a workaround. So sometimes, you know, I just write kind of um, teaching the student to ask for support or build self-advocacy skills. Also that a kid can't just do those things. They need to be taught and supported before they can do it. So that also has to be included. So uh, I think this section needs to be addressed, but it has to be done carefully. And in the end, that's usually what I wind up with teaching kind of advocacy, teaching um, pastor break, teaching pastor support in that section. How do you address um, kind of neurodiversity here in terms of one of the, the I think, very valid concerns is that, um, you know, sometimes um, the... Um, a, a lot lies in what your goal is for for being involved in doing anything to help someone uh, and with any form of, of of therapy or or anything that we're doing. And, and sometimes there are goals out there that, that I don't agree with, like, um, you know, making an autistic individual look less autistic um, by having them mask their behavior or do things that. Yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, because that's often, you know, we, we find things targeted for replacement that are in fact uh, adaptive behaviors that are, you know, um, part of a person and how they respond to a situation. So any thoughts on, on that kind of. Yeah, I think sometimes it's a great question. I think it's tied to understanding the individual and the people who that individual trust having conversations mm -hmm. to try to figure out what's going to feel okay and what we can try. And also, you know, I think for everyone involved, I think a lot is trial and error. Try stuff. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. And you try something else that it is a process. But I think it's including the person. Mm -hmm. And I think being really careful that we're not supporting masking or asking the student to mask because in all my my work and with complicated kids around the country, the student masks until one day they stop going. <laughs> and we've encouraged that. We've reinforced their masking behavior for so long that they just can't do it <laughs> anymore for their own self-interest, you know, right. just to kind of save their own lives. They can't mask which means they can't go to school anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I just hate to see it. And in fact, um, you know, I recall a time um, on my child's IP where there was something about uh, maintaining eye contact. Oh, yeah. That's not comfortable for him. No. Um, there's no reason, you know, so sometimes we see these expectations and I guess that's part of what's important here too. And in, in, in thinking about, um, you know, behaviors is thinking about expectations and right. uh, whether they're, they're respectful and, you know, um, supportive and, and helping and, and, you know, I would say pro, um, you know, neurodiversity as well. Right, right. And when we get to the content, what to write on the plan, those are really important things to, you know, to make it work for the individual. <laughs> right. Yeah, we should be so far ahead of, of those things, unfortunately. Mm. And, you know, Ross talks about, right, changing, you know, kids not meeting expectations. Okay. And teachers 
are often, or, or more school administrators probably, and teachers, are often taken back when I when I say, yeah, I think the solution is changing the expectation. Right, right. You know, it's, it's not about changing the child. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so many of the expectations, when you really look at them, are arbitrary. They're mm-hmm. not important. They're right, kind right. of in place because we've always done those things. Right. So most of the expectations really do need a hard look at. Mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. there's so many, um, there's so many things. I, yeah. And, I, and some things have changed. I always laugh when I see these high school uh, kids kind of wearing pajamas to school. You know, they look like so comfortable. And I think, oh my gosh, I went through school at all these like really uncomfortable clothes that I'm surprised I could focus at all. <laughs> And these kids, like, now they've nailed it. Like, they're hydrated with a water bottle, and they're wearing pajamas, basically. <laughs> I just think, like, oh, we, we've evolved a bit, you know? It's we so have a long way to go. Right, we have a long <laughs> way to go. But in some ways, but those were expectations. Um, right, right, you know, yeah. I, yeah, I remember the day that um, girl students were allowed to wear pants. It was on the PA system. It was a big change. It was, you know, so things can change a little bit because all the expectations are really just made up. Mm-hmm. They're just made up. They're not real. So this environmental part on the plan, and that's where, you know, all Greg's stuff would be, all the OT stuff, you know, really like put in. It can be in other areas too. Um, sometimes I, I, I repeat things which maybe annoys people, but I'm always worried that, People are only going to read one section, so I want it to be inclusive. But um, but definitely here, anything that is in the environment that could support your child should be here. So I just put a couple as examples, and I tried to have uh, conflicting examples too. Some kids might do better if they sit near the door, or and some or some near the teacher, or some really far back so they can stand and walk. So it's not, again, one size fits all. It's figuring out what they need to be supported in their environment too. I mean, I like for for young kids, you know, there to be a designated place in the classroom for quiet, time to regulate, kind of like um, Lori, Desitel's, you know, amygdala areas. You know, I've seen teachers use um, teepees and pop tents, you know, creative teachers or just a little section. I like those things. But anything for in the environmental section that your child needs, you should you should put it down there. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, often they, these are so similar, the plan. So you don't want your plan to be like the kid whose IP was the hour before. And the, and the next area is curriculum and instruction. And I just put a bunch of bullets uh, just that I've used, but uh, so maybe I'll, I'll read them to you real quickly. But you you use the ones um, that, that work. So about, you know, break cards or break signs, any kind of card for expressing wants and needs, extra processing time, one-on-one support in certain times. Shorter work task, less problems on a page, executive functioning support, this mastery learning approach, which I really like that not everybody knows. It's 
about starting any assignment with um, work that has been mastered, that your your child, you know, feels successful about kind of to warm them up before something that is more challenging. It's really easy to do, and I think it can help a lot of kids. I think really making sure that learning differences are understood with any kind of academic work, teaching about the brain and nervous system, all the homework modifications, kid maybe has no homework, maybe they do half the problems, whatever makes sense. And it's generally different in subjects. So, so no, it doesn't have to be the same. Just takes more time and effort and discussions to say, what makes sense in math? What makes sense in English? But that's what kids need, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The whole collaboration um, with the students, the underlying lessons, instead of taking notes, breaking down assignments or step and step instructions or, um, you know, instructions in writing instead of having to process it auditorily, coordinating between classes, this check-in and check-out um, at the beginning of the day. Some kids find it punitive. Other kids really love it, teaching mindfulness and breathing and generally the whole class benefits. No timed assessments or activities I put in a lot on this because for anxious kids, that really... Um, can make it harder. So I've gone a few slides more, but just to give you examples, but it's more, I want people to, to be able to think of um, beyond these examples, if, if they don't meet your needs, but it can be anything. It can be any of these things. What would make your child successful? And again, a lot of uh, trial and error to, to know if this works or not. So we can't rush these things. We mm -hmm. have to just figure them out. So, and it's good to figure these out when students starting school and they might change, but we don't want to wait till there's a crisis mm -hmm. to figure out what kids need. And just because a, a teacher hasn't done it before for a student doesn't mean they can't. And mm -hmm. hopefully through collaboration with the student and the parent, things can be tried and um, done the right way, hopefully, and and see if you get little improvement. It doesn't have to be everything is magic, just that things are going better. So I just listed all those as examples. The same, there's a section on positive supports, a few slides um, from here, which is in Illinois, it's a section I think it all should be positive support. So I don't really know the difference, but I guess these are supposed to be non-academic. So again, all those environmental supports about movement and um, limiting language and labeling emotions and empathy, choices if that helps, feedback and praise if that helps, if that makes things worse, you could say do not give praise um, if that raises the anxiety. Uh, so just really looking at what your kids need. Often the kids I've worked with benefit from having a place to go when they're stressed, a designated place, or a person for those connections, right? Because we need connections. I usually do more than one person because if that person's in a meeting or busy. And uh, often kids like the secretary or the janitor and that's fine. It doesn't have to be the social worker in the building, too. It's just people they feel good with. 
Yeah, you know, one one word of warning there on kind of that idea of a designated place to go um, is that we we sometimes see seclusion rooms that have the the cool room, the calm room, the blue room, the reflection room. um, And and there's a difference between a child taking a self-directed break when they need a a quiet space to go and and being forced into a room against their will and and unfortunately sometimes it's hard to tell the difference uh Absolutely. you know when we toured my son's school i was shown a room that i was told was a, a break room right. and and that's where my son had been secluded even after he was secluded the school said well sometimes kids go on there go in there on their own and of course i have a hard time believing that any kid that watched another kid forcefully drug right. into that room would ever choose to go in that room but but i've also seen as you mentioned some some great things that people do uh, whether it's a true sensory room or, you know, right. as, as Lori calls them, the amygdala reset area. Right. Um, there, there are people that are right. doing great things with that. But, you know, we, we do want to be on the lookout for yeah. what sounds positive that, in fact, can be a negative intervention. Right. I have um, I have a school I've worked with uh, a lot for various kids because they're better than most of the other schools. And it, it really surprised me that they had a hard time understanding that they can't be the same rooms. Right. They they just because I think that's just how it's been and and they just seem really confused when I pointed that out and said those same things. Oh, but kids are fine going in there and some kids really like going in there. But right. right. Well, yeah, that's not what I mean when I put it. So I think I mean need to add, make that one more clear. Yeah, well well and certainly my hope is to see those rooms uh the the, the rooms that are I used agree. for seclusion shut down. I I agree. I agree. Um, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Um, too. So I also have other things about having the student be a leader. That's made a big difference with so many of my kids, just empowering them. And often they're they're great leaders and um, letting them doodle or color. They don't need a clean desk and empathy and just letting them sit quietly. It always, when I have to write that in a plan, it just seems so silly. Like, why would you have... Just it just like sounds so human to me. Mm-hmm. Just give somebody some time and quiet. Don't talk to them. Leave them alone. Isn't that what we want when we're upset? I don't know. Uh, when I put let the kids chew gum, people get all crazed about that. But we know that, right? We know that chewing can help kids just orient and calm. Uh, all those OT sensory supports, time with support people. Uh, just those relationships uh, with other people and spending time just just at all times or when they want with people who get them, make them feel good, proactive problem-solving sessions, active listening, gentle reminders about work. I'm thinking of high school. I know some teachers and kids that respond better to little text messages. It doesn't feel as much like nagging. If it's a little text message, collaboration on timeframes with students, like when do you think you can have this done? That can really work, especially high school and working repair relationships if there's um, if there's problems. And a lot of that trust building, I think, comes from getting to know the student as a person, talking about their interests, what things make them happy. You can often see just the, the student light up when they're talking about 
things that make them feel good, especially if school is a place they don't feel good. So you want them, you want to get to know that child too, that the happy, fulfilled child too, and see if you can incorporate any, anything you've learned from those discussions too. I think teachers model acceptance and annoyance in their classrooms. So modeling acceptance of differences, helping you know the peers understand differences and supporting kids with peer um, interactions. I think adults have to be more mindful of their voice tone and body language than often they are. I think adults in schools need to value privacy, even though it takes more time sometimes when they're talking to kids. And it's not just adolescents that don't want to be embarrassed. So I think those kind of things can all be written in a plan. And then this keep in mind part, I, I think is often left out. So I'm going to read it, that when students are able to feel included in decision-making and listen to and experience success and mastery and feel learning is rele relevant, when they feel liked and respected by others and have meaningful social connections, they don't have challenging behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that needs to be our goal. And again, when we don't look at be challenging behavior as a sign that there's a problem, when we look at challenging behavior as the problem, then we miss these important concepts. Mm -hmm. All right, I have just a few more things. Uh, the next section is about those motivators and rewards. And, you know, what we know is uh, rewards don't build skills. And they might increase motivation, but I don't know if any kid I've worked with motivation's the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kids are motivated to do well. Everyone wants to do well. Yeah, so it's preferable for all of us to do well and, and you know than not do well, right? Right, right. Yeah. And for some kids, rewards add pressure and they make things work. So sometimes I write in that section that being successful will be rewarding to the student. It's kind of my workaround. And then, yeah, yeah. And, and all the hope there, right, is to to help kids build the skills they need to to have intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic or outside motivation. Right, right. And you can only have intrinsic motivation when your needs are met. Absolutely. And and that's what we need to focus on. And the, the restrictive disciplinary practices, right? So what happens after the challenging behavior? And often in schools, especially from some of the administrators that I've worked with, this is really what's in their head, is uh, what's going to happen after that behavior? How can, basically, how can I teach them a lesson mm -hmm. or punish them? So I try to write things like suspensions don't serve a purpose don't won't be helpful for the student not they're not helpful for anyone anytime there's anything written about anything not just that says um says uh seclusion but anything that makes me feel there's any isolation i kind of say the student needs to be with a supportive adult 
to try to do a workaround. I usually also write students should not be reminded of unmet expectation, of rule violations, of punishments. That is not gonna make a situation better. You know you're not supposed to hit people. You know you're gonna get suspended if you do that one more time. So I write not to do that. Um, I put uh, in to that, you know, any intervention I think maybe that's gonna be used that's gonna make the behavior worse because this is the point that often that's what happens. Mm -hmm. The adult's behavior escalates what happens. So a child might have a minor challenging behavior and then the posse comes in, you know, gets close to the child, lots of talking, maybe hands on, even a little mm -hmm. hand on, threatening consequences, and then the child escalates. Often the adults don't discuss their part in it, mm -hmm. but it's what happens too. So I, I use this to talk about that. And then what, what happens in the next section is that crisis intervention where schools often list their CPI or mentor or whatever their training's been in, or we follow the school's disciplinary code or manual. So uh, this is, you know, the section that can, you know, result in seclusion and restraint. So yeah. one of the things, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but one of the things that, that you know, I've seen uh, here in Maryland and other places is that um, if, re you know, restraint and seclusion, of course, are, are designed to be crisis management interventions uh, at, at, you know, and again, we have different state laws in different places. But, you know, the, the basic idea is you should never be using these things unless it is a crisis of such a magnitude, someone could die, uh, that there could be a, a serious physical imminent harm. Uh, yet more often than not, they're used for noncompliance, disrespect, minor behaviors, all these other things. And, and one of the things that, that we've found is that if you add them to a uh, behavior management, um, you know, if you add them to a behavior intervention plan, uh, they're more likely to be used. Um, just the fact mm -hmm. of, of putting them in that, that crisis management section makes people more apt to use them and use them in ways that are not even consistent with the law. So uh, here in Maryland, uh, many people believe that, oh, well, if it was in the behavior plan, then we can use it as a, and it becomes a planned intervention. Right. It's no longer crisis management if it's a planned intervention. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it certainly seems to me from experience, like it's best to avoid those things even being in. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. It's often in the cases I've worked in with lawyers and all, it's mm -hmm. all, it's a big fight. Yep. It's a big fight too, but it's true. Like you build it, they will come. Right. Right. If people are trained in it, they will use it. Right. But it, Legally, it's a big fight mm -hmm. to, to not have it. So it's, I usually just fight against it mm -hmm. and, um, and put in the alternatives. So I write a low arousal approach and I explain what that looks like about, you know, the adult being calm and making their presence um, kind of as small as possible and not talking and giving a lot of space 
And then I write removing others from the room, which often I get a lot of pushback from the schools. We can't, we can't remove the other kids. I'm like, yeah, don't they go to the library sometimes? Or what's wrong with a walk? You want to walk around the building because it just makes everything worse. Well, not to mention if it escalates and, and a child ends up getting restrained or, or secluded. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, it's traumatic. Yeah, I mean, that, that's traumatic to see. That's traumatic to view. Um, you know, of course, our, our work really needs to be done to be proactive and, and try to reduce the likelihood that a crisis is going to occur in the first place. But if it does occur, um, you know, and I've heard that pushback as well. Well, it's not fair to the other kids. Um, well, again, you know, we should be working to the point where we're we're avoiding those crises to Absolutely. the greatest extent possible. Absolutely, too. And and I also think part of our job in the schools is to to help kids be empathetic mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and say, you know, everyone's struggling. What you know, we want to support people that are struggling. Mm -hmm, and even mm -hmm. privacy is part of that, mm -hmm. too. So data collection, just, you know, it's hard to do, right? It's hard to take um, data. It's a lot of work. Often it's made way too complicated and not realistic. And then there's all these data sheets and they go in a file and nobody ever looks at them. So it's, it is nice to have data to know if your supports are working, but it needs to be easy to use, easy to understand, so we can use them for decision-making. And, and not have a negative impact on the student. And, and the reason I say that is I have that experience. Uh, my son had once a teacher who was who was very much into data collection. And every time he would do something that um, you know she d thought deserved a, a mark on the data collection sheet, she would make her mark. And, and one day, I mean, he became aware of this. He became aware that you know um, she was doing, collecting this data. And he said, do you ever mark down the things I do right? I mean, and that's the way it reflected to him. Like, you right. know, here's somebody just following me around and putting a mark on a piece of paper every time I do something wrong. Yeah. And, and I think that's the wrong approach. I mean, for him to feel that way, totally. even too, too many kids feel that way, feel like they've, they are failures. And, and very often the approaches that are being taken to behavior are ones that perpetuate that. And sure, it makes them feel like failures. Yep, yep. And I always think too, is, if someone like followed me around my work and took data on like everything I did wrong, can you imagine what that would feel like every time you made a mistake? I just can't imagine anything right. worse. Right. And right. when the data is really based on what the adults are doing, that's mm -hmm. how I want it too. Mm -hmm. If we're offering this, these supports and doesn't have, um, an impact. And, and that's kind of the mindset I'm hoping people can switch to. And the me these meetings are horrible, as I said before. So, so I tell my clients, be nice, but assertive, compliment anything you can. Don't go alone under any circumstances. And you can record it because most people are just so stressed they can't really process but often then the schools then have the right here to record it and that often mm -hmm. happens but i think that's fine i think it's fine to record it or have someone else take notes for you self-care before and after 
I think really be careful if it's a good idea for the adult to attend. The kids look awful, like so uncomfortable. People are talking about them, right. often not about good things. Teachers push for that as, you know, self-advocacy and all that. I think it's awful. I think maybe for a couple minutes, yeah. but it's there, there, there are better ways to get input from a child, right? I agree. I think and putting them on the hot seat, so to speak, and, and then blaming them for all the things that are going wrong and then expecting them to magically come up with solutions. Right. I think it's cruel and unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. And then figuring out who's going to get the information, the people that aren't there, which is often the teacher's assistants and the people who are really working the most with a student aren't invited to the meeting which is not okay. So mm -hmm. talking about that, how are the other people? Um, yeah. You, you know, something else that jumps out to me yeah. here, you know, kind of thinking about your recommendations um, and uh, I don't know what your experience has been here, but um, there's a voice of an advocate and a uh, person that I took some training with a, a number of years ago um, in my mind now. Uh, and uh, Miss, Missy Alexander from uh, Parents Place of Maryland and, you know, she made a point of kind of saying, you know, the importance of asking questions. And, and when you ask questions that you you take control of the narrative, uh, I combine that with the the idea of, you know, um, asking, you know, kind of, you know, the five whys, you know, um, you know, very often by asking questions, um, you can lead someone down a road where they begin to question uh, what they're actually saying. Absolutely. So somebody might say, well, we're, we're going to do this and this is, yeah. you know, okay, well, why? Okay. Because we want to, you know, and as you begin to continue to ask that question, um, people sometimes realize that they're, they're the, 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 um, lack of sense in what they're saying, but yeah. they might not see otherwise. So, you know, I, I would think that for a parent or advocate to, um, ask a lot of questions in meetings like this could be helpful. Um, and, and to a point where, you know, if you're not happy with the answer, uh, if you're, you know, kind of getting a because answer, continue to to drill down. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's so important. And if if since everyone speaks in acronyms, if you don't understand something, right, right, what to ask to, and and I think be clear if you don't understand or agree with something, make that point that. You know, if you think something's going to be ineffective or make things worse, say that. And even if the IEP doesn't get changed, usually the parent part uh, protests will be in the notes section. And in Illinois, the notes section is part of the IEP. So I, I don't know if that's the same everywhere. So if the school insists on kind of saying something should be ignored. If you don't want your child ignored, uh, just, you know, note that, well, I'm okay with this and this, but not that. Can mm -hmm. you make, and you can say, can you make sure it's noted somewhere mm -hmm. too? And then I think my last slide is just this little bit on adults because they, adult programs sometimes have behavior planning. And I think it should be the same process. I think they're also very tied to rules and regulations. So you want also in those placements to look at behavior as a symptom of uh, 
a bigger problem or an underlying problem. I think looking at getting the voices of the uh, direct care staff and the people who are actually there at three in the morning and kind of doing the a lot of the day-to-day work and including the adults in the problem solving and decision making for their own lives and like what I said about the school students that when people are fulfilled and happy they're generally are not challenging behaviors so looking at the the life of the individual if they're having challenging behavior and seeing what changes you can make in their life too and that's all i got i crammed in a lot of things uh just as as samples as ideas to give folks hopefully whose kids are in school just some some thoughts of doing things differently than a a typical school-based behavior well, Diane, Diane, this has been really great, and and I really appreciate um, you taking time to share this with us today. Uh, of course, um, I, I was just seeing your presentation before, and now I see that we've we've gone fairly long today, uh, but that's good. And, and you know, I just want to let people know that uh, I, I wasn't trying to interrupt you frequently, but we kind of talked about oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah well, let, let's make it a conversation. Oh so, yeah, I love that. <laughs> hopefully, uh, I, I think the dialogue might have sent us a little bit longer than usual, but hopefully, some of that was really helpful. Um, I had one question still burning in my mind, sure. um, and that is um, around people. So one of the things that I've seen and, and know many other children that have experienced is um, so they're they're doing well uh, in these three classes, but they always are having problems in this specific class. Yeah. Um, and and sometimes it seems to come down to an individual Um and it's the um, approach that they might be taking with a child. Um, and, you know, again, you know, well-intentioned, but sometimes inappropriately trained staff are not only failing to de-escalate children that are having difficulty, but they, they actually can escalate them. And, and very much so, I think a lot of people would relate to this experience where it's, it's somebody that, that seems to um, be, um, you know, even if not intentionally, kind of setting off their, their child. How do, you, how do you manage that or how do you address that knowing that, um, you know, again, you know, you get that statement of, well, we know that they can meet the expectations some of the time. Right. And some of the time, in fact, the problem could be that the people that are supporting the child. And then and you're right, it happens all the time. I think it's different in different situations. If I have a good relationship with the administration, I, I go to them and I just say, this is what I see. Like, how are we going to fix this? And sometimes it has resulted in the child switching teachers <laughs> that or taking a pass if it's a uh, you know, a special teacher, an art or music teacher, or something mm-hmm. like that, that they yeah. do an alternative to that. Or if there can be different training or mentoring that someone else goes in, so, you know, that's tried. But I, I think it has to be addressed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So um, knowing that we were recording this, um, I did invite people if they had questions to email them to me. And I told them if they got them to me prior to us recording that I would ask some of them. And I did have one person send in a couple of questions. 
Um, and, and Frank, uh, honestly, I think you, you've answered a lot of them in our discussion already. Um, but I was just going to look at these real quick and see if yeah. there's any that, um, we might address. One of the questions was about, um, um, you know, kind of beginning the functions of behavior. It says, you know, do you use, uh, mentalistic explanations for behavior? You know, behavior can be caused by anxiety, trauma, sensory overload, or do you exclusively, um, look at functional explanations of behavior? And, yeah. and I think you, you've kind of address that already that you, you're looking right. really right. away from the the classical functions of behavior right. into right. you know what's what's getting in the child's way and of course some of that has to do with kind of realizing that not all because there was another question here about kind of unintentional behaviors and, and I think you've addressed that in kind of the the work of uh you know Monadella Hook and the polyvagal theory realizing that not all behavior is, is volitional um um, that, you know, there are things like, um, you know, a child entering a fight or flight mode or feeling unsafe, um, that can, um, that can lead to that. Um, so that was kind of going through two questions, but I just want to see if you had any response. Well, to, well to I that. think just, I think all those things are good to think about, but then it, it leads to the next question and is how are we going to address it? Right. Whatever we're going to call it, we know the child is stressed and things aren't working well for them. So we need to, it's on the adult, whether you call it this or that, you know, that the function is escape, let's say, oh, it's escape. It's really, why does the child need to escape? And how, and it's on the adult to fix that. If, if for so many reasons, the child isn't feeling safe in that situation and needs to escape, they can't fix it. We have to fix it as the grownups. That's our job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I had a question here kind of about, uh, you know, I, I, I had mentioned in the, uh, the, the comments about your presentation, kind of that idea of the stress support plan. And the question was about, um, you know, when coming up with a, a behavior plan, then are you, are you, and again, I think you've kind of addressed this, but, you know, trying to under, trying to address the underlying stress, um, you know, or just looking at the visible behavior. And I think right. you've, you've covered that. It's it's well beyond that visible behavior. Right. It's understanding all the right. things that might be into right. that. And that's just our heads up, that there's a problem. Right. There's a visible behavior, which should trigger us into action. Oh, look, there's, mm -hmm. there's a sign, a signal that we need to fix things. Mm -hmm. uh, another question about whether or not your, your plans ever use extinction to extinguish behaviors. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm not an expert on extinction, but my understanding is a lot of that's about kind of incentives and consequences. Uh, it's more like what happens. Yeah. After the behavior. Right. Okay. Like if you've been reinforcing it. You stop reinforcing it. No, because to me, what happens after the behavior isn't going to like us focusing on that's not right. going to lead us in the right direction. We need to be upstream looking at. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the final thing that was asked was just kind of in, in your work as ABCBA, and I know you've mentioned that you don't, uh, you don't do uh, ABA, but, you know, um, have you listened to the voices of autistic adults and their critiques on ABA, and has that influenced the way that you do your work? Sure. I, uh, I have, I mean, I don't do ABA, and I, but I have clients that are autistic adults. I think it doesn't really come up with most of my clients, I think, hadn't 
had ABA or or it hasn't come up. I don't because I, I think in part people don't come to me because I'm a behavior analyst. I, I mean that's not right. how I support. I don't support them in that role. We don't think of that's my approach. If they're wanting, let's say, to get a job, so to change some behaviors or some things they're doing to get a satisfying relationship or a job, I partner with them on, on, on figuring out how they're going to be successful. But, but yes, I mean, I've certainly read the criticisms about ABA and I've never done ABA therapy. It's just, you know, just, I don't know. I've never thought about it or thought it had anything to do with me. <laughs> but but I can say when I had first read an article a long time ago that compared ABA with conversion therapy, <laughs> I was so horrified right. that, you know, that right. well, this is a thing. This is people's yeah, yeah. experience. And, and they, they share the same roots. Um, you know, we, we had a, a fantastic... Uh, presentation by uh, Robin Rosinski at one point, mm -hmm. and you know um, the the roots of of ABA and conver uh, conversion therapy are the same, and you know a, a lot of it's about kind of those compliance based approaches. You know, I know you know groups like uh, the Autistic Self Advocacy Network and others have put out great information on you know kind of the uh, experiences of autistic individuals related to that. But and, and I know I know you're you're aware of kind of the um you know the uh the impact that that's had um and you know i mean honestly i think that the approaches that you take are, are not you know you, you're not about compliance you're not about um you know just just um you know looking at these functions of behavior you're really about supporting individuals and and understanding all the different places but you know and i think it's always important for us to to um you know hear um you know, hear the voices of people that have been absolutely you know, and learn from them. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I, and I'm certainly open to that. I, I'm just not big on changing people. That's just never been right, right, right. You know, something in my consciousness, even though I, I certainly know that it's been done to so many people for so many reasons with a with so, a really you know tremendous impact so often on people that have been through oh, those yeah, things and you know, I, I think yeah. you know i think no matter who you know no matter who might be um you know working with you or or your child or whoever it may be you know the goals of what somebody's approach is is so important any any kind of therapist or you know whether it's an occupational therapist or a speech therapist or yeah, yeah. um you know um, somebody working around behaviors um you know, the goals are, are really important to, to what people are trying to accomplish. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, they shouldn't be about changing people. They shouldn't be about uh, making somebody less neurodivergent or, you know. Um, right. Yeah. And they shouldn't be about my goals. Right. Right. Like there's no place in it for my right. goals. Right. You know, I I don't view my role as, mm -hmm. as that. Role. Well, this has been a really great conversation. And I've really enjoyed um, the chance to talk to you and listen to your your thoughts. I know we've talked about it before many times about, you know, how there are many schools out there that are developing these behavior plans that are really causing a lot of damage yeah. um, that are following, um, you know, well entrenched approaches that aren't really helping kids. And, you know, I appreciate that you've been looking at this from a different lens and trying to figure out how you can create something that actually, 
you know, will help people and, and, you know, will help um, the, the kids that are having the plans written um, because, you know, really that should be the goal. So really appreciate the conversation and, and want to thank you for uh, joining us today. Um, I will um, uh, mention to our viewers that we'll have another session coming up in two weeks. Uh, we're actually going to be talking to uh, survivors from the troubled teen industry mm. and learning more about what happens in the troubled teen industry and what you can do to help stop that. Because, you know, these things that we talk about, uh, restraint, seclusion, you know, the way that people try to change behavior uh, happen in many different settings. So, uh, Diane, thank you. And thank, thank you. all of those of you that have joined us today. And we'll look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Thanks so much, Guy. Thank you. Bye.